Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. Hi, David. So one of these days I'm going to call you Gene instead, so I can be like, hi, Gene. Hi, Paul. That's so terrible to say hi, Gene. Hi, Gene. I have it's good, hygienic, I, though. It's I very have, hygienic. Yeah, I have good hygiene, so. Yes. I'm very, very, very picky um, about, you know, my soaps and all that. I use military soaps, Jim. You do? Yeah, I went and I got, um. so <laughs> this is really not good for this podcast, but I'll say it anyway. Uh what do they call it? It's a, it's a type of soap that they sell at Duluth Trading Company, and it's freaking it's like a big ass brick of soap or something like that. But it's all the military, like the old Korean War soaps. And oh yeah, it's pretty harsh, but uh, I like it. It smells good. So I am really sounding odd and uh, awkward here. It's good. Yeah, yeah good podcasting. So. um we're all we're all doing some different stuff now. I mean, uh, I'm working on a, a, a lesson book that's going to be the subject of this episode. What do you got going on? Uh, I've been working on the less uh, one of my lesson books, um, working on my fretboard freedom, and uh, I was um, I may be joining another band. I don't know. How's that? You can, probably can't give additional details at this point, right? No, because it. Yeah, I still gotta. One is a one is a country band that I'm gonna audition for, and another is a pop, like an all around pop mm-hmm, band. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in the all around pop band because they want to play more often, and that's really where you know my goals lie. Yeah, even though you know the previous band, you're like I only want a gig like twice a week or something. Well, that's because twice, well, two or three times a month. But I was singing lead in that band. Yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah. That's a lot of work in that. Oh yeah, especially the sure high notes is. I was hitting. Sure I could have done. I could have done it every weekend. Um, I had no problem with that. But if you said to me, Jim, I need you to do Friday, Saturday, uh, that yeah. would be a little difficult. Your voice is voice. blown out, you know, after after yeah. one gig. And like, yeah, I get you. So, yeah, I was, uh, I was singing 27, 30 songs of the 40-something songs we did. Um, I guess I should do my housekeeping, right? Yes. We are going to switch to pre-recorded housekeeping. I haven't done it yet. So I'll go ahead and throw it in here. Are you a regular listener? Why not? Subscribe to The Practical Guitarist using your chosen podcast app. Take the time to put in a review with the service where you found our podcast, like iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or Google Play. Get involved. Find our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash practical guitarist. You can also find us on Twitter as at practguitarist. If you're interested in supporting the show, we've launched a Threadless store at practicalguitaristpodcast.threadless.com. If you'd like to donate to us directly, you can do so at uh, Patreon, which the version of the notes I have in front of me right now do not have the Patreon address. It is up in the group. If you'd like to reach out to us directly, you can do so at questions at practicalguitarist.com. So, um, I think it's patreon.com slash practical guitarist. But, um, yeah. Anyway, we, we, we have people donating to the show. We're very thankful to them. Yes, uh, we are. I believe we have some money sitting in that account. We probably should go. Uh, I should get that over to you so you can pay the hosting fees. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of stuff going on in the last, 
there's been a lot of stuff going on the last couple of weeks. So I, Jim is pointing at me. Did I do something? No, you keep it. I'm not keeping it. <laughs> you kidding me? You need, we need to you, pay you, the you, posting fees. Actually. Yeah, but you bought the, you bought the cards and the shirt. So oh, I don't care. It's cards and a shirt. All right, whatever. See, we're um, like two guys fighting over who's going to pay for lunch. Yeah, that's exactly what this is. This is, this is, uh, <laughs> Uh, Jim and me meeting in the middle of age, right? So, because I'm the younger guy and he's the older guy, we're meeting in the middle of the age and we're deciding to argue with each other about who's going to pay for dinner. <laughs> yep. See, I usually pull the Larry David and just leave the table when that happens because <laughs> I got to go wash my hands. But, yep. <laughs> no, I don't do that. No, but that's me. besides the point. <laughs> not me. Um. Anyway, as we're as we're here sitting talking, last week's episode, um, we talked about. Uh, some technique stuff on uh, yeah. on a Thursday episode. Uh, I recall somebody got very bitterly angry, and I don't remember uh, who that was. I'm yeah. trying to remember, and I remember it was it was about it was about going to the past. Now you now you fly in the part where you were screaming at me. No, I'd rather I'd rather not. Back. I'd rather not. Um, if you make me do that, I might scream again. Um, <laughs> so I I got a book actually the night. Uh, I believe it was the night we recorded and uh, I ordered it off of Amazon and I got it. And I, I want to talk about the book for a minute and it is um, yep. neoclassical speed strategies for guitar. And it's the highest rated um, shred book that I could find on Ingve style shred. Right. Cause there's different right. styles. I'm, I, we yes. would all consider Steve Vai and Cetriani and Paul Gilbert shred players. And they right. all have very distinctly different ways that they do it both from a technical perspective and also from um, the style of music that they make too. So right. I, I got this book because this is, this is the nearest and closest to my heart. Um, I'm going to be seeing Ingve on October 27th. Uh, I will probably have a review for the show when I do that. Um, I'm working hard to see if I can get some special access to that gig. But yeah. um, as I'm looking at this book, what's really cool about it is uh, we've talked about Troy Grady. I know we talked about him in the last episode. Troy Gary yep. has been demystifying picking strategies for guitar right. players. And he's come up with at least a couple of strategies that are pretty much universal that almost all of these guys do. And that and one of them is uh, also covered in this book, and that is downward pick slanting. Um, right. Now, we talked about uh, last week, and my rant was about the fact that people tend to mystify these things. They want to they hide them behind a veil of... Uh, pretty flowery language and and also i put my dues in so i understand this and you don't kind of stuff um, right the same thing that locksmiths used to do to people um this is this is not that book that troy grady is not doing that thing okay so what they're doing right. is they're saying here is the surefire strategy to either a sound like and, and actually in this book it's, he always gonna be on that to sound like Ingve, right or to do it in a, in a mechanically precise way. So Ingve has some very peculiar ways in which he uses um, picking and legato. So hammer ons and pull offs to accomplish what seems to be these slurry of pick notes are often not. They're often more legato than you would, than you would think. Um, and they, they call it picado in the, uh, the text because it's not staccato. It's definitely not legato. 
uh, because there's, you know, obviously he's using hammer on some plus as part of these phrases, but he does it in a very tactile way. And it's also right. a way that allows him to be more efficient with the pick. Well, um, I noticed that the, so the book, there's two, the series, it's broken up into two books. Yes. There's speed strategies for guitar. that's neoclassical. And then there's speed strategies for guitar at sweep picking. Very, those yes. are two very different techniques. And I'm actually surprised I don't have another one that is for alternate picking. Well, so it is alternate. This is alternate. Oh, that's alternate. This covers alternate. All right. But it it only covers neoclassical alternate, right? And then the yep. other, the sweet picking book, I get, I kind of get why he wouldn't have to lump that together because pretty much everybody who sweet picks is doing it in an extremely similar way. Um, there are a couple of different people, and I'm sure he probably cover. And I'm going to get that book too, but I'm sure he probably covers guys. Um, trying to think the guy that were the guy that's at carbon frank gambali he has a very unique way of doing it and i'm sure he covers him differently in the book than say ingve or the other contemporaries that that style of picking but um ultimately what i got out of this book i'm only i'm only like i even finished with the first chapter um and he spends probably four or five pages with a fairly concise explanation of downward pick orientation which is what he calls it but it's downward pick slanting and I know on the last episode I had said, you know, downward pick slanting didn't do a whole lot for me because it ruined my articulation. All right. So I was doing it wrong. Um, and that's because I and I don't know whether it was the original videos I'd seen from Troy Grady were just set up this way or whether it was because I didn't fully understand what Troy Grady was trying to explain, like poor communication or in and you know communications on both sides it might be poor listening too um or whether i was trying i was dead set and doing something else case in point um i had my metronome uh before i got the book set to 160 beats per minute um i've been running triplets there's a little exercise and i can post it in the group or whatever if anybody's interested um, there's a little exercise that I guess came from Paul Gilbert that was handed to, uh, Robert Baker and then Robert Baker put it on his YouTube channel. Um, and I just been using it as a way to gauge kind of where I'm at. And I immediately bumped this up five beats a minute, you know, every couple repetitions that I could get perfect. And it was really quickly. I was hitting 190 beats per minute, 195 beats per minute in that, in that zone. And I got to say, like, I couldn't, I literally physically could not go that fast doing it the way I was. And that was because I was flat picking. So my pick was oriented. So it was a 90 degree angle to the body, which means I was just picking straight up and straight down. What, what pick slanting is, if you can imagine you take your pick 90 degree to the body. So like if you had your guitar sitting on the table and you pick straight up and down, like you were going to pick the strings and then you take it and you turn the pick about between 10 and 30 degrees north towards the ceiling or towards your towards your abdomen if you're if you had the guitar on the table right yep and you just pick that way and literally because you do that and the way that the wrist has to 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 um he talks about pronation and supination and i don't i can't give the exact terminology of how how he explains it but because of the way that the wrist settles against the guitar um and the the forearm contour if you have one it immediately means that the picking attack is going to pull the string away from the strings when it goes through. You're going to use less of the tip, which that's the thing that I think is the the biggest bonus 
but it's going to pull the pick away from the strings. And so therefore you will not get caught up when going from string to string. See, that's what I'm afraid of. So I think, I think it might be a good idea to throw up some video of that because honestly, like maybe get um, someone that you know, that can put the camera close. I know just um, the person. Yeah, so do I. That's why I was asking. And um, so if she can hold the camera close enough and get a good shot and you can kind of exaggerate, not exaggerate the motion, yeah, but exaggerate the slowness. Yeah, you can just show how the pick is oriented and then show right. how your picking changes. And it's, right. I mean, it's really clear. If you, if you watch any of Troy Grady's videos where he does a slow down motion, yep. you can see it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very obvious, but I always thought that when you pick naturally, even with the with the guitar pick ninety degrees, your natural inclination, because your index finger is longer than your thumb, is to pull the string, pull the pick away from the body slightly. Right. But apparently, it's not, or or the if the motion isn't exaggerated enough for it to matter, and that may be right. that may be more accurate. Now, the cool thing about this book is, and like I said, they 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 demonstrate things that you wouldn't necessarily need in the Ingve style of things, where you can actually do upward pick slanting. And I haven't heard Troy Grady talk about this one too much. But if you're doing a descending run and you orient the pick, remember I said if you turn it towards you or the ceiling, depending on how you're holding the guitar, if it's on a table. Yep. If you go the other way, so ten to between ten and thirty degrees south, right. you can do descending runs and you're literally just like dancing over the strings with the with the tip of the pick. And it's I mean it's the clarity you get out of it is just stupid. Um and the thing is, because it ne- more naturally uh, matches, you know, how fast your wrist can move um, and and all that, like it becomes a lot easier to become articulate. I am by no means am fast at this yet, nor have I conquered the fact that I have to fight the the technique I have right now. So th- this right. is the funny, stupid part about this. When I first started learning to play this kind of material, I think I learned Black Star years ago and I, I can't play it now to save my life. Um, right. I learned Black Star. Is that the Richie Blackmore thing? No, Black Star is Ingve's. Uh, oh no, Ingve, yeah, right? yeah, that's, that's the, the one. Yeah. That, if you're going to learn an Ingve song, that's probably the one you should learn. I um, think the reason that I thought it was Richie Blackmore is because he talked about how he got his his uh, inspiration from oh, Black. Oh, we're gonna go. We're gonna get. We're gonna get there because I want to talk about Richie Blackmore in the in this episode too. <laughs> um, so, how can you talk about Richie Blackmore and not laugh? <laughs> I, yeah, I yeah. I, oh, no, I understand. Well, like his current career is a joke. I'm not talking about. He's he's an incredible musician. Don't get yeah, me wrong. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that. So that that's actually what I want to talk about. I want to talk about his personality more than anything. Because uh, oh okay, because yeah, that's so, just hilarious. <laughs> um. So, you know, you slant the pick upward, whatever you can do it that way. You can go the other way with it. This book tells you, Ingve does not use upward pick slanting, at all, ever. This book goes on to explain that he cheats. That there are, and I think I've already mentioned on the show. He uses what he calls pegado, which is like a way of him cheating, basically. But what 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 gets me? All right, so there's a lot of guys that slamming vein, and they're like, "Oh, he's a shred ballerina." I've heard this term used with regard to him, um, and that people like Jason Becker were better than him. Listen, Jason Becker was an incredible fucking musician when he had the ability of his hands, um, and he's a great composer now. But the thing is, um. Becker was not playing the same kinds of music. He certainly was not a shred ballerina. I mean, I've seen clinics from oh. him from the eighties that are just like, I just sit there and I, I cry. Cause I'm like, I'll never be able to do this. There's just no fucking way. Oh yeah. Um, no, no person that walks the earth 
you know, is going to sit there and go, man, this is attainable. Um, yeah, what happened to him was very sad. Very yeah, sad. Uh, if, if for those of you not aware, he has uh, Lou Gehrig's or ALS. Um, he lives in Asia now, right? Because uh, uh, I don't know. I thought he was living in Japan. I know that he has a um, possible a full time uh, person that does nothing but Transform, take notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do translation for him so that he can get his compositions down before he passes away. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, he, well, he's he's outlived uh, every estimate of how long he's going to he's going to be around um, yeah and i know that um whatever people think of kiesel kiesel gives part of, or a large part of that guitars that they sell for yeah specifically uh, his his solo model so every yeah. every year or so they do a they do a special edition and they donate a large portion of proceeds to lou Gehrig's research or him directly for his care yeah which is yeah. very cool um but anyway with regards to Ingve, so a lot of these guys will do things that is technically ferocious for and, and and he's one of them right master sweet picker master alternate picker but the thing about jason becker when you watch his playing is sometimes there's fireworks there he's done he does things in his playing just because they're difficult and it's like okay watch this you know i can do this i don't think you can and it's not necessarily it's not that it's not musical like you can do that and be musical and that's that's the mastery genius of jason becker as a player but the thing with Ingve is he'll play things that are musical and he'll find Like I said, he cheats. He found a way. Now I guarantee you he could play it straight alternate pick, but he found a way to do it faster, more consistent. And in a way that uh, allows him to, you know, just kind of like exercise his muscle power, which is pretty impressive because he does a lot of improv too. So his whole technique is based around this idea of like knowing what he's going to do before he does it. Cause for example, he'll, he'll pick two notes and then he'll he'll uh, pull off to the third, and then if he does a four note run on the next string, he'll he'll alternate pick the whole thing, and then he'll and and he just knows instinctively like this is going to be a four note thing, so we'll you know we'll just hit all four notes, and that's the basis of that Pigato style, and he's and he's developed it to the point where it's just it's um it's reflex, and I I mean honestly when I try to do it I sit there and I think and I'm like. How do you know what pattern you're going to hit before you get there? Like, what is going on in this guy's head? Um, and it's one thing if you do it with a composed piece of music, but when you're improvising, that's a whole other animal. Um, but I, I like this book. I, I wanted to recommend it to our listeners if they're interested because it's a, it's a style guide. And that's what I was looking for. I couldn't find a Hal Leonard or, you know, any of the other major book companies style guide to Ingve's you know, playing. And I don't know why that is. I think it's maybe people are embarrassed to admit that they want to emulate somebody like that. Um, Cause Ingve does have a lot of haters. Uh, there's a lot of people that um, I don't know. I, w- I don't want to say they're jealous of him because I think that's, that's overgeneralizing, but I think there's a lot of people afraid of what he does in the sense that um, they don't necessarily understand why someone would do this. Cause I, I've heard people say, Oh, he just goes as fast as he can. Cause it's, you know, it's unmusical. Listen, you slow Ingve down, you listen to what he's doing. It's classical music. There's nothing unmusical about it. It just may not be your cup of tea, and that's okay. Um, I've had many a debate with people on forums about stuff like that. So J- Jim knows about one the other night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that one. I think the problem, I, and I'm not sure why this exists, there is definitely in the guitar community this 
my hero is better than yours. My guitar is oh, better sure, than yours. Sure. My gear is better than yours. My well, and, and it just it wears on the it wears on the brain. Honestly, it just I I don't get it. You know, if if you've got um if you got a, a guitar hero, whoever it is, you know, I don't care for anything that came out in the grunge period. Yeah, there's well, like two songs that I can listen to that. All those, you know, um, you keep the flannel shirts and all the stuff that went with it. I don't, I don't care. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate what they did or what the um, the talent levels that were there. Um, it's just it wasn't my bag, of, you know, my bag. I just didn't like it. Sure. Um, I think that's part of it. I think we are in a what is essentially been a been a male dominated thing for a very long time it's now starting to those those lines are starting to blend and as we know men tend to be the my dick is bigger than yours mentality Um, (laughs) and so you know i think that plays a part of it um i think going back as far as like even even within a genre bands you know genre same decade people want to piss and moan about which band's better than one another and you know Music is not a competition, people. Like that that's what I don't seem to understand about these kind of attitudes and behaviors. Is that yeah. music is not a competition. I don't berate Jim for doing things the way he does, and he doesn't berate me. We're not sitting here doing that. Right. Um, I've never said, Jim, you're stupid for not listening to this band. Yeah, he hasn't and not out loud. No, I always think it. <laughs> I think it a lot, but um no. I and, and the other thing is like oh somebody like Ingve you don't expect non-guitar players to be into these people. And I think there's a mentality and I've seen it before where it's like, I was, I was working as a consultant in the IT world. We were having an office wired up and the, uh, the, uh, the crew that, that did the office wiring, they did a lot of our projects. So I knew them and they were not guitar players, but they were talking about Steve Vai. And I was like, this is weird. Um, and I had this, you know, this is weird, but they're like, no, we like that kind of music. And I'm like, well, you don't play guitar though. You don't play an instrument. And it was like, it was kind of shocking to me that somebody outside of the guitar community would be aware of these people. He's like, well, my brother plays guitar. He listens to his music. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now I get it. So you've been exposed to it. Maybe that's why you like it, but not necessarily because you went out and sought it out yourself. And that's what I'm getting at. Like, I, I understand the guys that are out there that are, you know, poo-pooing on somebody like Satriani or Vi or, Gilbert or insert what other insert your guitar hero of choice. Right. Um, and they're like, nobody would actually listen to this music outside the genre. They, they, that's why they suck. And it's like, well, well, yeah, but I mean, you could say the same thing about blues. There are plenty of people. And I've heard, and I know of some who, who thumb their nose at that genre completely. And they're yeah. like, why would anyone ever want to listen to blues while they're driving around in their car? Um, a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, I Not was, me. I think it. I think cultural groups and stuff play a part of that. Um, I I certainly know that there were some people at work that were very shocked to find me listening to Albert King the other day, which is really yeah. funny. They came down to my desk and they're like, "Oh, that's you." And I had you know, I met, it was Friday. There was nobody in the office. I had my Albert King turned up, and it yeah. was like, like it was you. I didn't know you listened to that kind of music. That's the music my parents listened to. And I, you know, like I listen to it too. And I'm, I'm just kind of like, well, 
I'm kind of offended that you assume that I don't listen to this, but at the same time, it's like, well, all right, fine. Go away. Leave me alone. Well, <laughs> I think the offense is more, um, I think that people assume that straight up blues is for older people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because let's face it, it's mostly my generation that still, um, you know, takes a knee every time that they hear about the um, Stevie Ray Vaughan stuff. So, yeah, I, I would think or, I, yeah, it definitely has to go with people who live through that. Right. And I don't think I, I honestly think I'm right around the tail edge um, of people who grew up wanting to play like those yeah, guys. Sure, sure. And then like guys like you would actually kind of be um, more like I, I want to play like the person who played like them. In other words, that. Yeah, sure, from certainly them. certain people in my age group. Um, the classic example is John Mayer. Right. I, there are or Joe Bonamassa. There are plenty of people my age that idolize Joe Bonamassa as well. Um, which is really funny. And the John Mayer one just kills me because usually if they idolize John Mayer, they kind of look like him, too. I've noticed this. Oh my gosh. I, I, I gotta, I gotta do an aside. I was listening to some folks that were posting stuff on Facebook, you know, they're like, Oh, post your, you know, your band playing. And this guy had a solo thing mm-hmm. and he was so worried about trying to get that ridiculous crap that bear will bear will do with his voice. Now that mayor does, by the way, naturally, it's not a thing that he's he trying sound, to. Well, he sounds a lot like fucking Stevie Ray. No, I'm not talking about what he does now. I'm talking about his pop stuff, not when okay, he's doing okay. the blues thing. So he's singing. He's singing about your body as a wonderland. Yeah, and you notice how he has like a um, he has a raspy um, yeah. high end. Um, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> and his choice of notes up there, you know, roll, um, you know, to the minor versus going above. He comes yeah, in yeah, below yeah, the yeah. note, right, right. so on and so forth. So, um, very male Amy Winehouse ish, and. Uh, I'm tired of hearing guys doing that because it sounds like they're chewing gum while they're singing to me. And it's like, just freaking open your mouth once in a while. You know, you don't have to worry about people making fun of you for opening your mouth and singing. But anyway, um, that's, that's where I kind of get where at least with, with John Mayer. Now you're a little older for, to look up to John Mayer. Cause John Uh, Mayer's about the rage. He was coming up when I was, 16, 17. Right. So, so he's closer to your age. He's only a few years older. Yeah, are. he's probably 35. He's like two years older than me, I think. Right. Think about it. For me, Eric Clapton, let's see, I was born in 64. So, and Eric Clapton was already doing his things. So he's 20 something years older than me. That's what I'm talking about. I'm at that tail end of that. I would, I would think somebody for you would be like, well, maybe Stevie Ray Vaughan, because you know, it's always what yeah, your parents older, listen to right, as well. Right. Well, my parents never listened to him. Uh, by the way, John Mayer is actually 40, so he's seven years older than I Is he really? Mm-hmm. Really? I didn't think he was that old. Yeah, he's quite a bit older than he looks. He's had some plastic surgery to keep his boyish oh, Plastic surgery. Yeah. Um, so, if he grew a beard, like, I could yeah, probably it, accept him. <laughs> yeah, he hasn't grown a beard. Actually, I think that helps his age look, because every time I shave my beard off, I take a few years off. If People I shave my beard, thing. I look like I'm like nine years old. It's stupid. Yeah, that's it's, why I don't do it. And if I, you know, until only a couple of years ago, when my hair started going gray on top, I could get away with shaving my beard and still look like I was in my twenties. Yeah, and 30s. I, I remember seeing you like pictures of you because you posted a couple in the group or whatnot, and I'm like, yeah, you looked a lot younger there. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, that and I can hair color. I can do that. a little just for men and probably get away with it for a little while longer. Don't bother. But um, yeah, a little retina around the eyes, or what they call that retinol. No. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I mean, but My I, wife I could I, do I, Botox. Joking, I I could I could go for that. Um, anyway. But uh, I know that Botox is something you either you do you don't do it just once you got to no. keep it up, that's right. and that's why I would never do it. But anyway, um, there there's just that thing about um, who was here's the thing though who was between uh, Clapton, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and uh, John Mayer, Kenny Wayne really? Shepherd, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. That's pretty much that's it. Pretty much it, right? That, yeah. I mean, I'm talking about for blues guitar. Don't, yeah, don't that's what I'm saying. Yell like, at me! Oh, there was Jerry Cantrell, and there was you know. Yeah, Kim yeah, but those were not blues, was, those were not blues players. Like maybe, no. maybe um, that's just said. Like maybe Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Yeah, I mean now for um, for the Shred guys, you had Metallica, you had Kirk Hammett, um, and you had Slash. You know, um, and uh, even though Slash is Slash is kind of blues based. Slash is not a Shred player. Slash is no. a, Slash is a dyed in the wool rock player. I would put him in the yeah. same category as like Angus Young. Yeah, Malcolm Young kind of. Well, thing. you know, if you hear Angus Young play like what he likes to play, yeah, he's a blues player. player. He's a blues player. Yeah, and that's why his rock is so infused with blues. Well, I think he's, rock in general is infused with blues, and that's where I make the separation between rock and metal. I think if you, I think if you infuse rock with, or if you infuse um blues with classical music that's how you get to metal you know what i mean and then rock is blues and more blues and you know some better different tempos maybe maybe a mix of of, uh, blues and jazz you know i remember hearing um or reading an interview with uh angus young and he said that um you shook me all night long was a country song he said we wrote that as a country song no i could see that because it's in the key of g Oh my God! Just and he because said, of the key, just because it's in the key, of G, you you've got to realize it. That's what a lot of people, um, the the haters of of ACD, I, I don't think like. I've it's seen pretty much an A or E and A, and that's it. And they they use the key of G in that song. I think and I he, saw Brad Paisley play. Uh, uh, you shook me. I can believe that. Yep, and I can believe that he would have done an awesome job. Oh, he fucking killed it! I've also seen him do Hot for Teacher. Which is oh, yeah, I've uh, which seen is that also that. fucking stupid. Is, we should put that in the show notes. That one is incredible. Um, I've seen that Hopper teacher from uh, Brad Paisley. That's a good one. Um, but anyway, was I getting? Oh, I was getting that when I was growing up. There were so many, so many big blues infused rock players, and you can call them blues players if you want. I still call them rock players. Um, you had uh, Eric Clapton. You had. Um, uh, the fusion guys, um, you had uh, like, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, what's his face um, from Yes, uh, Steve Howe. You had um, uh, Jeff Beck. You had the Allman um, Brothers, Jimmy Page. You had the yeah, you had Dwayne uh, Eddy and Dwayne Allman and, and, and uh, Dickie uh, Betts. And you had so you had so many, and there were so many styles of it. You could sit and you could listen to the Allman Brothers, which was a Southern blue. Southern infused blues rock with, with, with that. Um, and then uh, with a country twang almost, but then you could sit down and listen to um, uh, give me three steps, you know, uh, Leonard Skinner. And they didn't really sound like each other. No. And the funny thing is like, so our generation now would look at that song, give me three steps. 
and and I know because we had this discussion with somebody just recently. Give me three steps. Sounds like a modern country tune, like something you'd hear from like the late nineties or early eighties or late late eighties, early nineties. It, yeah. it sounds like you know, like a George Strait tune or something, and, and or or even uh, um, who's the big guy? Uh, Garth Brooks. And yeah. I just laughed because I'm like, yeah, they ripped off Leonard Skinner because that's not what country music sounded like back then. Like it oh. was a whole other thing. Oh, country country music back then, and and you know that 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 line of country. I mean, so. One could argue that bluegrass was the true country music. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I mean, I consider that more on the folk side, but yeah, I agree. Right. So you had folk, which was, you know, and of course, when I was growing up, you had Woody and Arthur Arlo Guthrie. You had the, um, uh, who were the guys that did, um, uh, it was the, the Mamas and the Papas. You had John Denver. You had, um, sure, uh, Simon and Garfunkel. There were so yeah. many of them. Right. And, uh, you know, and then there were guys that were kind of in that realm that broke away. You had Neil Diamond and folks like that that were kind of breaking you away. Keep Neil. Now you know what? There was a time. There was a brief period in the seventies when Neil Diamond was a rocking son of a bitch, and then he turned into a poppy pile of crap. Neil Diamond is one of the people that's on my list. And if we haven't talked about the list on the show, I have a list. It's a running list. There's a very small amount of people on him. If I run into him in person, I'd give him what for, and if they gave me shit back, I'd hit him in the face. <laughs> and he'd be one of them because he his music just drives me fucking ape shit. It's like I, so I listen to derivative stuff. No, I listen to the old stuff, you know, and I really like it. I mean, if you think about it, Sweet Caroline was the first one that really did that. Oh uh, yeah, you're right, but I uh, God, I know it's not his fault that it took off the way it did. Well, it's not just that; it's his representation of himself on stage, like. You want to play these quote unquote rock tunes and then you come out and you're like wearing your fucking shiny ass coat and shit. And it's like, what are you, Elton John? Yeah, because he, he knows. He can't that, figure he out what he is anymore. Yeah, I almost feel like he can't figure out what he is anymore. Like he's just like stuck somewhere and doesn't understand. Well, that's why, yeah, that's why South Park makes fun of him too. Um, <clears throat> same with Barbie Streisand. I mean, she yeah. has she has a voice that would, I mean, it just, it, it, for me, it's just heavenly. And yet people hate her. Because let's face it, she did do. What's some- the what's the famous record she did with the guy from the Bee Gees? Oh yeah, guilty. Yeah, guilty. And well, they stayed guilty too later. Yeah, they did the second is, one. Yeah, and they were both. <laughs> I'm not saying anything about my orientation. They were both good records. Yes, as far as pop records go. Yep. So I loved them both. I, I and again, I love Barbie Streisand. I didn't I, say I loved um, them. But I said they're good. <laughs> no, I, I, I love both of those. And and I I love pop music a lot of pop music the older pop music we could go into was older pop music better than today's pop music again you can't generalize it today's pop music is for the most part a big bucket of shit all right can we can we talk can we talk stuff can we talk about today's pop music for just a second because i had an astute observation the other day in the late 90s and like britney spear actually really probably started with the boy bands right um yeah and I'm not going to go as far back as New Kids on the Block because they were. I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. Don't shoot the messenger. They were they were white kids put together by oh. a studio for a project where yep. they were hijacking the New Jack Swing sound, which right. was which is stereotypically a you know a black culture form of music. Um, and I would I would be remiss to say that there are not other great 
you know, artists yeah, new doing kids. New Jack was, Swing was Timberlake, and stuff. Was no, Timberlake that part was, of New Kids? No, Timberlake was, was um, way later. He would have been right. like 12 years old when New Kids started or something Okay, like I that. have no idea. That, uh, obviously, that went right Yeah, now. so the reason why I say this is because right when we get to the end of the boy bands and like Britney Spears starts, right? Okay. Britney Spears was the was the boy band equivalent for the men. Well, um, she was created. I don't want to say men. I want to say one. teenage boys. She was a teenage um, uh, or uh, uh, um, a Disney teenage girl yeah, right. pop star. Which which she was she was. Um, uh, let's face it. If we go back to the eighties, we've got Tiffany. We've got uh, who's the one that starts with a D? Ah, crap. Anyway, um, the other Tiffany. Um, <laughs> well, I can't remember her name. The reason why I'm saying this is because there's a common thread here with. All right, so you have Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Mandy Moore, yep. Um, yep. and I'm sure there's somebody else I'm missing. Demi Lovato. Well, no, right at that that same time, these all these four oh, okay. started right, like right there together, and then all of a sudden, like twelve or thirteen years pass, and the music doesn't fucking change. If you look at right. pop music from the late '90s and compare it to pop music today, it has not fucking changed at all, at all. It's overproduced. There's a drum machine on the track. There's a bunch of synth sounds that are kind of like, uh, I would say like kind of like horns. Um, right. There's usually some kind of crazy corny beat going on underneath everything, which is uh-huh. why I say drum machine. And then you have a female vocalist, usually who's very, very attractive, who cannot sing for shit. Um, but you can auto tune it. Right. She so can auto- carry so enough do- no- she can carry a note well enough for auto tune to work because right. anybody that thinks that auto tune can perform miracles hasn't used auto tune. Yeah, well, I, Melodyne, the modern equivalent, you don't even have to be able to sing anymore. It's getting mm-hmm. to the point where it's you can literally just midi, you can just midi all the notes in and then just have them say whatever the fuck they want. <laughs> Away it goes. Um, but yeah, you you would you would believe that they could actually like kind of sing like that so that they can get it closer and make it sound more natural. Um, but even so now we have what Lady Gaga we have, um, which she's kind of an exception. Um, and then we have, um, who is the, uh, Katy Perry, who is, who is a fucking straight clone of Britney Spears. Um, and maybe with a little bit more talent, but, but basically that's just so that they don't have to, they don't have to worry about her shaving her head and going off the reservation. Like, like Britney Spears did. Um, cause, cause that basically destroyed Britney's career. Whether you, what, like it or not, that and that thing she did with Madonna pretty much destroyed her career. Um, and then, they, so you've got her, and I'm trying to think. There's there's some other ones that are out there right now. Um, Pink is one that's kind of defied that logic a little bit, but her music—that's the thing. As talented as she is, her music is very much the same as your Britney Spears, your Christina Aguilera, your Mandy Moore. Uh, the Mandy Moore record. About, there's a reason why she didn't. Or- yeah. There's a reason why maybe, Lady Gaga. Uh, Lady Gaga is a little bit different because she came from the gay club scene. So like her music is very much more um, what I would picture from from like the, the, the gay club scene music. Another right. great record for that. If you guys aren't aware, um, Freddie Mercury did a record where he had some like dancey songs on there. It's called The Great Pretender. And they're all like they were aimed at um, gay clubs. That's, well, that's where um, that's where uh, Barry Manilow and um, uh, what's her name, um, uh, the Rose. Come on, um, the heck's her name? I can't I can't recall offhand, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. 
Yeah, she did the wind beneath my wings and rose and all that. Yeah, it, he was her Ben Midler. Yeah, he was her piano player. Mm-hmm. Um, gay clubs in the in the seventies. Right, and that, and it's fine. Like that's a legitimate form of music. It's a legitimate yeah, genre. Thing. But my point is that that pop music has literally not changed in like the last twenty years. When it when Britney Spears hit in like nineteen ninety eight to today, pop music is still doing the same damn thing it was twenty years ago. And it wasn't that way when you were a kid, Jim. It was every every song sounded different in the pop genre. You might have one song with classical strings on it and a a slow groove. You might have one song where you got some guy playing chains. You know, it's just a whole nother thing. Right. Um, Uh, Well, okay. so one of the folks that I follow, Rick Diotto on YouTube, was talking about this. So I don't want to I don't want to take credit for this, Um, but. One of the things that he mentioned, because he's he's got a he's written a number one song, co-written a number one song, and he's he's produced um, platinum albums. So he's a guy that knows what he's talking about. And one of the things he was talking about, as far as the is today's music and and the culture of musicians that that get signed, is that there are there they don't want to sign somebody they have to take a chance on. Exactly. So if you have a hit on YouTube to pick you up. The the Meet Me Outside girl that's got the D's Hoes uh, song, which is ridiculous. It's actually kind of you funny. Bad and it's baby? actually Bad Baby. It's it's kind of, it's funny and it's kind of a cute song until you ri- realize that the girl singing it is way too young to be singing the words you're hearing. And it's just, it's like seeing a, um, uh, an X-rated film and realizing that the, um, the, the actress yeah, is 14. Is, yeah. It, it, it just kind of tastes bad. It your takes mouth, the you know wind I mean? out of your sails. Cause you, uh, right. it's like you should it's be horrible. a registered sex offender for watching it. Exactly. And the people that put it on should be registered sex offenders. Only Arista records can go ahead and do that because nobody's quote unquote getting hurt, which I, I want to go I would, into that. I, I yeah. just think, <laughs> I think it was my daughter for another day. It's hard to turn down a million, you know, a million or $2, but geez, a pro. Put her right. It, put her right in the damn jail. Yeah, that's it's too bad because you. Yeah, I, I can see the future, and I just hope it's not the future that she has. But anyway, that aside, um, you know, the thought that um, that someone, you know, the record companies uh, do do a couple of things because there's there's many ways to become a star now, right? You can sure. in one YouTube, you can create a song, uh, Rebecca Black, and then get a deal. And never get any money from it. Rebecca Black, you don't know anything else she did, right? She's she was bad. She was not a good singer. No amount of auto tuning could fix that nasally crap that she calls a vocal um, quality, right? But people listen to it. Now um, you take that, um, but but a record company signed her. Why? Because she was already a star. William they Hung. Know they've got some. Yep, William Hung. Uh, who was the other guy that uh, signed? Why? Well, Psy is a different story because he is hugely successful in Korea. Yes, but he his his this side um, his Western record deal came from the fact that right. hey, people already love this song. Let's get yeah, a record. It's deal. not. It had so nothing to do with. They were like, oh, well, he's going to write some great pop tunes for the U.S. audience. Like that right. was never the intention. Yeah. By the way, his music that. was in Black Panther of all things. Yeah. So kind of weird. Um. But anyway. So the the record companies aren't taking chances anymore. That's number one. So if you're if you're looking to get that way, that's not it. 
Now let's look at, okay, I can go on American Idol because there's plenty of guitar players who can sing. Then an American Idol got up there, right? Um, so one of my Facebook friends, Jack Daly, played bass on uh, one of the American Idol guys' um, songs, Home, Scotty McCready. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Scotty McCready hasn't done anything since, right? I mean, so that's that's the pop what, industry, though. They throw but, people away. Right. But what they do is this is the horrible thing. The people from American Idol sign away everything they would ever make for years. Same yeah. with the voice, all those things. So, folks, if you think that that's a way to make money, you got everything coming. No, a lot of those but, people. In fact, one of the one of the ladies, I, she, she, I think she finished second. Yep. She ended up, she's like, she owns a restaurant or something. She doesn't want anything to do with the music industry because it's oh. like, I can't, I can't, I can't make any money doing that. No, because what they do is they sign a deal that signs away five years. If you think about it, five years is a huge amount of time for fame to go away. You can't take five years off. Mm-hmm. You can't even take a year off. No. That's why. Uh, um, and you've heard of the sophomore, um, you know, crush or whatever well, they call it. Where I, but, I, th- I think about it this way, Jim, and maybe this is the best way to spin this for our listeners is that yeah. you're taking someone who has aspirations of having these great musical performances and, you know, recording big records and all this stuff, but you're taking them out of the equivalent of like, maybe they play a bar, a bar gig every weekend. That's right. not the same thing. They didn't work their way into it. And so no. you're just thrusting these people out there. And what happens is they fold. Right. They collapse. They can't handle it. Right. Because it's a lot more pressure. All of a sudden, it is a business. Yeah. You had a and day a job. Real... Now you don't have no fucking day job to put food yeah. on the table. It is a very real business. And uh, even if you're, even if your day job was as a musician, you suddenly realize that you've got to do stuff you didn't like to do anymore. Yep. I mean, think about the guys from um, uh, the, the bands like Tommy Tutone, The Knack. The, every single time that they play, they have to do a certain song. And nobody cares about the other stuff that they do. Nobody. So, to bring it back to that guy, Inge. Yep. Um, and Chris, the, let's give the uh, writer um, some credit here. His name is Chris... Um, Chris Brooks. Yeah, Chris Brooks. You can get his book on Amazon. Um, I'll post it in the show notes. It's, and Joseph Alexander. Yeah, I'm I'm impressed. Like, and even just looking through some of the the um, other things in this book, I'm I'm going to have a lot to work on for a really long time. There's a hundred and something examples. Um, many of the examples are, you know, here's a scale that the Ingve uses, and you know, and here's all the patterns for it. Enjoy. Um, so you just got to work your way through it slowly but surely. Uh, probably also want to pick up one of one of the um, songbooks so I can actually have some real world examples to work on as well. Yeah, I'm gonna. But, I'll grab the uh, the other one, the sweet picking speed. Thing. Oh, I'm getting that too. But uh, to oh, yeah? to sweet oh, yeah, for sure. Um, to swing back, and I'm better at sweet picking than I am at alternate picking. But um, to swing back around from, um, you know, pop music back to Ingve. Here's a guy, and we're gonna talk about Richie too. We got to get him in for you in the show. Here's a guy. That grew up in Sweden, idolizing Richie Blackmore, yep. um, deciding to pick up the guitar because Hendrix died, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, thinking that seeing he saw, I think it was when Hendrix died, he saw the footage of Hendrix burning the guitar at the Monterey Pop Festival. I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Um, I guess he was in a musical family, so 
he picked up a guitar they had laying around and he just played the shit out of it. And then he ended up, he ended up dropping out of school. He was a, he was a huge, uh, personality problem for school. Um, I think, I think his family had money too. Um, he's never, yeah. he's never publicly said that, but, uh, cause, and, and that's going to tie into this next story. So when he, he turns 18, I think it's 18. He says, fuck it. I'm leaving Sweden because there's no way I'm ever going to have a musical career in Sweden. So he flies to the United States with his, I think it's a 73 strat, the one, the, the duck caster, the one that he plays all the time. Yep. Um, flew to the, the United States with like $200 in his pocket. That was all he had. Right. And, uh, was signed very, very quickly, um, playing in bands within, within weeks and literally putting out records within months. Um, yeah, didn't he get, didn't he quickly join, uh, what was he on? He was in Steeler first and Steeler. then, uh, and then Alcatraz. Alcatraz. And that's then what I was thinking. by the time he was in Alcatraz, he was so fucking well known that when when he dropped out of the band and Steve Vai came in to replace him, people were like, "What the fuck?" They were yeah. they bought tickets to the shows, and he got Vi up on stage like, "All right, I'm gonna do my best." And they're like, "What the hell is this shit?" You know, yep. even though Vi is obviously a very high quality player. Actually, Vi Vi had a, an interesting conversation about that because they they've since mended fences. But in the beginning, he's like, "I didn't really like Ingvay all that much because he's like, I got out. He's like, I got shit thrown at me and all this other stuff because right, of him. yeah. Um, but they they've since mended fences, and actually, most of these shred guys now are pretty good friends because they play festivals and stuff together all the time. Um, yep. And uh, he came to the, so he basically came to the states with virtually nothing. Although, don't act like he didn't have a safety net because I believe he came for money. I believe his family's actually nobility in Sweden, so right. he could have just called home and been like, "Yeah, I need money." And somebody yep. probably would have given him a ticket to come home. Um, but right. the thing is, like he he came here with with that attitude, like I, I rock and roller broke. And um, it's it's one thing to hear about bands like Motley Crue that came from like either the, I don't remember where they came from exactly, but like Midwest or Georgia or wherever they came from, and then going all the way to California. Look, this guy got on a plane, came to a country where he didn't speak the language. <laughs> okay, right. with, with with no money. It wasn't like you, Jim, you go, you went to countries where you didn't speak the language, but you were there yep. with the military at least. Right. Like, exactly. Had I had a buffer. Yeah. So, um, he, I think he may have stayed with Mike Varney or somebody like that. Cause I know he was friends with Mike Varney and that whole thing. Um, but it's just a, it's a cool story. It's a rags to riches story. But then you go yep. back and you look at his, you look at his, um, and I think we talked about Richie Blackmore on the show before, but we're going to talk about him a little bit more right now. Um, Richie Blackmore was, so we had at that time we had Jimi Hendrix because <clears throat> he really started in the late sixties with yep. the early deep purple. There's a book called, or uh, an album called um, book of Talesian, which is like their early art rock days. And that's yep. Richie on that, that album. And, right. um, which is way more psychedelic than the Yardbirds. Like it's out yes. there stuff. Um, yeah. And then, so you had at the same time, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, yep. all these guys were going around saying Blackmore was one of them, but Blackmore was a lot more low key. And yeah. Blackmore did a lot of session work like Jimmy Page did. Um, right. But, and, and so when Deep Purple's first record wasn't a hit, he kind of turned his hand and said, well, let's try something different, which is why they changed the lineup. And then yep. they put out, um, I think it was in rock. And In Rock is a seminal rock album, if you have never listened to it. 
Um, I highly recommend all of the early Deep Purple stuff after Book of Talesian up until I would say Fireball is probably the last great record. Well, their first hit was like a um, like a pop song. Wasn't well, that it? was that was Book of Talesian where they did um, yeah. Hush. Hush. But the version yeah. of Hush that's way more popular is the one that came off of Come Taste the Band or whatever. Yes. Like way later. Um, so they've had, listen, they've had so many fucking lineups in Deep Purple that they have a numbering and lettering system for knowing what, what lineup you're listening to. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so Mark II is the superior lineup, but there is a Mark II A, B, and I believe a Mark II C. And A, B, and C are the same lineup, but at a different time. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, you want to look for the Mark II albums. And the funny thing is that um, Blackmore was so was such a fucking visceral player. I mean, his his vibrato, his bending, his yep. uh, sense of note melody. I I put him head and shoulders above the other guys that were his contemporaries. But the thing is, he was ahead of his time. So all the guys in the eighties were looking at Blackmore and going, "That's the dude I want to be like." And they were yeah. playing like Blackmore. And I I wish I could play like Blackmore. And I've worked really hard to kind of get towards the Blackmore style, which is why I fucked up my picking years ago, because I used to pick downward pick slant. And I thought it was wrong because I figured that you were really only supposed to be able to have the pick 90 degrees to the strings and that I was doing something wrong. Um, and it was just a gut feel thing. And I wasn't getting enough articulation. So I stuck with 90 degree picking. That was like 15 years ago. Um, so I trained it out of my system, the downward pick slanting thing. And I basically fucked myself for the last 15 years or so. So now I'm like, oh shit, I got to relearn all this stuff, which is why I demonstrated downward pick slanting for Jim right before the episode. And it was sloppy as hell. Um, yep. But Jim, I'm, I'm sure you could see that the potential is there. And right, that, right. and that I will have that worked out very soon. But it's one of right. those things where even to just be sloppy at 195 beats per minute doing that oh, yeah. is just stupid. Like, where right. does it come from? And it's it's that's basically an hour's worth of woodshedding. Not even that. I think it was probably well, a half hour. Yeah. So Deep Purple was just here in town uh, last yeah, night with Steve Morris the night before. Yeah, and which I mean, it's fine. It's it's got Steve Morris, but. I mean, people are going out there and they're like, oh, yes. I, I, I'm like, you know. There's only two members in Deep Purple from the Mark II lineup even left. Yes. And that is Roger Glover, the, yes. the uh, bass player, and um, uh, Ian Doc, Yeah, well, Gilliam. Uh, and Ian Pace, the, the drummer. Yeah, Ian Pacey Pace. Pacey or Pisey or whatever. So you got Ian. Yeah, you got Ian Gillen. And Ian Gillen, is it Gillen or Gillian? I don't know. It's Gillian. Um, Gillian. Um, so that was in rock, fireball, machine head, made in Japan. I the mean, stuff the, you think of when you think deep purple, you know? Yeah. Come taste the band. Um, you know, perfect strangers. That is a fucking phenomenal record, Jim. Uh Oh, I think I've lost Jim. Incredible. Yeah. F perfect strangers. is A great record. Um, battle rages on, which yep. I believe was the follow up to that was not as good as Perfect Strangers. You you want like three records if you're if you're not a Deep Purple fan to get into Deep Purple, I can recommend you three right now. Indrock, Machine Head, and um uh Perfect Strangers. Come and on. if you got knocking at your back door. Made that, in Japan. 
Yeah, yeah, the live the Made in Japan. It's still, it's one of the best live I mean, albums of all time. That was such a great live album that when Iron Maiden did their live album, yeah, they they did it. They called it Made in Japan so that they could they could uh, you know follow Cash up in. on that thing because well, does. there's a perfect example: Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and yep. um, Saxon, and all those British heavy metal Except, bands, like the the first wave of heavy metal from Britain. Yep. All of those bands owe their uh, they owe their shirts to to Deep Purple, and they all oh, yeah. admit it. They all no. admit it. They all admit it. If you you would not have had the the dual guitar lineups, and that was a thing. You take two of the two of the biggest dual guitar lineups in heavy metal, in my opinion. If you're going to take the top two, it's going to be Iron Maiden and Jewish Priest. And you know the stupid part, Jim? These bands went the dual guitar. Like, the, these two bands went the dual. No, nobody's going to fight you. Uh, these these two bands went the dual guitar route because they were yep. trying to emulate Deep Purple. And yeah. it's so funny because Deep Purple only had one fucking guitar player. One. Yeah. <laughs> and and well, he didn't even play the shit. Like, okay, so no humbuckers. Fucking no. The, no. Blackmore was a straight strat guy, right? Scout Fritz? Gee, I wonder where Mel Machine got that idea from. Uh, yes, Richie Blackmore did it differently, but... Yep. I'm just saying there's the similarities here are just ridiculous. And if you ever get the opportunity, and I believe I've mentioned this on the show before, there is a VHS tape that um, it's like Ingve basics or something. And it's, it's ancient. I think it was put out by young guitar in Japan where he does, he plays a couple of deep purple tunes and he plays demon's eye. And he does this thing in the solo that just sounds like random shit. And it is literally on the record as random shit. And he can do it. Yeah. Like and it sounds identical. <laughs> that's just it, though. You're you're thinking, oh, that's probably not um, on purpose. The guy, it's just incredible. That's all yeah, I can say. Uh, that song, Black Knight's my favorite. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, so, um, in my opinion, when when um, guys like Maiden and Priest, what they were trying to do was emulate the the column response and the playing off that, that Blackmore had with what was the keyboard player, the B3 guy. Um, that would be Don Airy. Yeah. Don Airy. Yeah. That was, I mean, you took those two guys, they were always vying for, for space because Airy wanted to stay with that, um, psychedelic. No way. So Don Airy was the, was the guy that replaced him. Oh no, John, John. um, Yeah. John Lord. Lord, I feel so John bad Lord. saying that now because, like, yeah. I remember that Don Airy replaced him. That's why I said it. But it was John yeah. Lord, absolutely. John Lord. John Lord is a fucking machine. Oh, now just incredible. The funny thing was that John Lord, some of his greatest stuff, like off of um, "Who Do We Think We Are," that record, he did yeah. uh, uh, "Rat Blue." There's like this solo in there that's like extremely fast, and I always thought that was him, but no, actually, it turns out it was him. But they sped right. it up; they doubled it. So they actually, oh. so he played it at half speed, and then they doubled it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. Like he was that on time and like knew what they wanted enough to actually write out that solo so that he could it's, double speed it. It's just funny that when I saw the um the interviews with John Lord, he was he was like, I don't wanna I didn't really want to go in this in this direction. When they got the machine head, you know, because in rock really kind of Sealed it for him. His fucking his organ playing is otherworldly. Yeah, 
I mean, and and on in rock and and Machine Head and all those records. Yep. I don't care if he didn't want to go in that direction. He created something by being frict- by being frictional, something that people uh, absolutely love him for. And yes, case in point, he was a um, he was a classical pianist, and yep. he had written um, several pieces for orchestra, and he performed Deep Purple Concerto for small group orchestra, for yeah. small group and orchestra. That was one of the, that was the first Mark II lineup record, actually. And it was just uh, it was a performance of his piece, which made headlines because like a rock band playing with the, the London Philharmonic. Yeah. So, well, if you look at it, they were even though they were kind of contemporary. Yes. Um, was also doing that um, thing, but I think they got it from uh, Deep Purple. Oh, no, yes. Was I think yes, actually started right before Deep Purple because I well, think I their first that- record came out in 67. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. I'm talking about the way that they moved, the direction that oh, they moved. Oh, sure, sure. Later they, in the 70s. Because Yes definitely became a harder-edged band. Yes. Which was kind of interesting. I, I actually really like a close... But in the beginning, they were much more... They had a much more classical... Um, sure. Even their harder-edged uh, stuff yeah. has a more classical slant to it. Like, Closer to the, close yeah. to the Edge, yep. that record, uh, Siberian Kachiru and all the songs are on it. Oh my God. Like there's some heavy freaking stuff on there. They just didn't get heavy with the guitars. Whereas it seems like the purple went heavy with guitar and organ. They were like, we're going to yes. use an organ and make it sound like a guitar. And um, that was done completely on accident, which is, which is a really funny thing. They didn't have um, appropriate amplification for John Lord. Yeah. So he was running so through had- Marshall stacks. Yep. <laughs> 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 Which sounds great. Um, actually, if I had a B three, I'd be running it through a uh, uh, super lead plexi too. So nobody would have nobody would have ever thought to do that before him. That's what I'm talking about. It's those happy accidents that that they kind of took with them and went to other bands. And if you look at it, you got Yes, you've got um, Asia with Jeff Downs, you've got um, uh, bands like that. That again, they were contemporaries, but just like Clapton, Clapton was a contemporary of of um, of Hendrix, but he stole a lot of Hendrix stuff. He was like, wow, this yeah. guy's doing shit that I can't, I, I, I can't even imagine doing. Let me steal some of that. It's funny. Um, cause, cause nobody stole from, from uh, Blackmore for like 10 to 15 years. Right. And I think it's partially because nobody could steal from black Blackmore for 10 or 15 years that the state of guitar playing had not been reached, raised to that level yet. Well, I think that, I think that now this is a band that flies under the radar most of the time. I think it blue oyster cult. Yeah, sure. And, Buck Dharma was doing a lot of that stuff, and and Cult was playing New York City clubs at that time. Yeah, well, and I've also heard him say that that he's uh, he was a large part of his playing to to guys like Blackmore. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that's okay. I'm I'm not like I'm not pooing anybody who could have pulled it off. I'm just saying there weren't many of them. Like now no, you can go to Guitar Center, he... you can't stop staking a sh- stick at somebody who can do you know Ingve. So it's like, yeah. Um, it's one of those things where I feel like the level of talent raises with each generation. And a lot of that has to do with quality teachers of the previous generation's music being available, making that, that material easily accessible. Um, If you listen to some of these guys that are talking about when they took lessons back then, if you think about it, they listen back, taking a lesson back then you walked in, you had a Hal Leonard, um, a method book and an acoustic guitar. Yeah. if 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 not a nylon string. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, nylon string acoustic even with action this high and everybody, um, uh, you know, 
they were like, oh, well, if you want to play rock, you're not going to be good enough to be with us because we're going to teach you how to play, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Act, well, they would say like actual music. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like real music. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. But, oh, you want to use a plaque? a pick oh my god if you think bass players are bad <laughs> and it's so funny now because when you go into like take a guitar lesson like you're like wait a minute you don't want to learn rock music yeah like, what the yeah, fuck's the exact opposite now. yeah it's like what the oh fuck's i'm sorry i could not teach classical <laughs> yeah yeah no there's no way i can't do that that music is dead to me <laughs> exactly so but if you but if you look at it like i said i i, I just think that um when it came to to guys like blue oyster cult they were they were one of those under the radar bands, and so, they they were doing that kind of thing. Because when Richie Blackmore's Rainbow came out, right in the uh, what was that late seventies, right early eighties? Uh, it would have been it would yeah, like I think it would be like eighty one, eighty two. It was like yeah, between eighty remember, and eighty four, because that's yeah. when they did uh, Perfect Strangers. Because that's when he yeah. came back to the band. So Stone Cold was my favorite. I know that's probably not most people's favorite song from them, but that was one of my favorite they, songs. I don't think they have any bad ones. To be honest with no. you, um, you know the funny part is so Rodney James Dio was part of Rainbow at some point. Yep, and Ian Gilliam from Deep Purple went over yep. to uh, fill in for Rodney James Dio in uh, Sabbath for a tour. Yep, <laughs> that's what's funny. <laughs> we just trading guys around at that point, like. Well, that's like Newstead and uh, Tr- Trillo swapping places. I can't. I can't blame. Um, Ronnie James Dio for leaving Sabbath. I mean, they did light him on fire. So yeah, <laughs> uh, that pretty much says it all right there. Um, you know, Ronnie James Dio, everybody that I've seen interviewed, there are very few people that will, will talk crap at that level. Yeah. Nobody about says anything their, negative about Dio. No, no, no. But D, and Dio is one who would just nicest guy. Um, you know, he's like five foot. Well, he was like five foot four, you know, yeah. he's a very short guy. But one You're of the right. sweetest people that you never meet, right? Um, and yeah, like me, and because um, I'm only five six and a half, so oh, you um, you would tower over that, him, Jim, and you'd tower over him. <laughs> yeah, I would have, I would have towered over him by an inch and a half. Um, but uh, anyway, the um, uh, the one person that you will consistently hear people say, "I could not stand to be a band with that guy, Richie Blackmore." As good as he is, there's a lot of bad talk. And you can just do those of you who don't believe me, just look at YouTube, Couple look of, up interviews of people slamming Richie Blackmore. It's all over the place. I, I feel like I'm a, 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 a librarian of Richie Blackmore material. I have, I believe the DVD is called Come Hell or High Water. And yep. that was the last, I believe it was actually the last show that Richie played with, with Deep Purple before leaving permanently. Oh, is yeah. that when the big blow up happened? And yeah, and he throws the water bottle at uh, yep. Ian Gilliam. In the, Ian Gilliam. Yep. Yeah, he stops the guitar solo yep. for just a second to pick up a water bottle and throws it at the singer who's playing bongos up front, and and misses him by a lot. But the water yep. goes everywhere. It's just funny. And then he's you can tell he's just madder than hell. And then he just proceeds to you know get back in the solo and he's fine. And then like gets to the end of the show and then he basically tells him like I'm done. Actually, yep. if I if I recall, he told them right before they went on stage that this would be his last gig. Yeah, that was how they got the message. That's how they got the news. That yep, I'm done. Yeah, because uh, um, who's the who's the um, the bass player? Uh, Roger Glover. Glover. Yeah, Glover was saying how 
shitty that was. And I saw an interview with John Lord, same thing. Um, There was no love lost when Richie Blackmore walked away. Well, they, so they didn't, they, they were not. Now I know, I know John Lord said he was not angry with Richie. Like he understood Richie probably better than the rest of them did. Cause, cause he, again, they both had so much talent. And oh, to, yeah. and and they both felt like they were being constrained by these choices to stay in a specific genre and to do these things. Yep. So that's why Blackmore leaves and what's he do? He goes out and plays Renaissance music with his wife. Um, well, not before he does uh, does Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. No, no, no. That was then the first. That plays. was the first yeah. time he left, Jim. This was the second oh, really? time he. Left. So he did it. He did it twice. Yes. <laughs> no, he didn't throw the water bottle the first time. No, no, the water no, I mean, bottle was the final straw. Right. So, yeah, no, but he quit. He quit um, in 1980 or 1979 and then went and started Rainbow and then did two albums with Rainbow and then disbanded that when they weren't commercially successful enough for his taste. And then right. went back and did two albums with Deep Purple. And then yep. when that came apart, he left. And, then then that he was, the, and that was it. And then you had a slew of guitar players come through, Joe Cetriani and a bunch right. of other guys. But didn't that was the point when he went off and did the the, the Renaissance music, music with his wife? Yeah. yeah. Well, so the his, Renaissance music. So his wife is very Yoko Ono. And yeah, she was you, the Stevie Nicks thing. If you watch interviews with with Blackmore today, which are very rare, you will yeah. see his wife because she never lets him do an interview without her. And ah, you need to read the guitar the guitar world where they finally got him away from the wife long enough what to get it, Well, no, see so, so when he decided he was going to return to rock music, they they he started doing real publicity again. And mm-hmm. I think the that maybe either the production staff of the record or the company was like, look, you're going to do this. She can't be involved yeah. because she was the one that was going around saying like, Oh, well, everything that happened in deep purple, it was so hard on Richie. And it's like, you weren't even there. You weren't even yeah. married at that time. How the fuck would you know? You did. I think she was like 12. when. Black- <laughs> yeah. Cause she's like, oh, yeah, she's, he's totally robbing cradles. Let me tell you oh, that yeah, much. Big time. And um, she. I'm talking about 12 when he went back. <laughs> yeah. Like, so she, her whole thing. And, and and you just get the sense that she's very much like. um, Like the girl in. um, Spinal tap. Like, yes. well, I know what he wants. And so we talk about it before he does it kind of thing. And it's like, wait a minute. We're interviewing Richie Blackmore, not you. I don't care if you're the singer for Blackmore's Night. We're not interviewing you. Nobody cares about Blackmore's Night except for, you know, us knowing that Blackmore is in the band. Like, yeah. that's all they care about. I just um, want you to know she was born in 1971. Was she? So, yeah, yeah. she so has been. In 1980, she was 19. So, you mean when just when, you know. when In Rock came out, that meant. She wasn't born. Yes. <laughs> or no, she was born. 19, yeah, No, I think In Rock <laughs> came out in 1970, didn't it? Uh, 70 or 71. Yeah. So, so either way, I mean, yeah. <laughs> there's a very good chance that she hadn't happened yet. <laughs> okay. <Exactly. laughs> so put exactly. that one into perspective. Yeah. She was to say that, oh, well, the guys in the Mark II lineup were so mean to Richie. How the fuck would you know? Yeah. Because Richie <laughs> says so. She was still shitting her diapers. when. <laughs> Everybody I've, I've heard do interviews out of that band, especially the Mark II lineup. Um, and again, I'm kind of a librarian for them and I, I have every record they've ever done. Um, 
they've all been super nice guys. The only one that's a prick when he does interviews is Richie Blackmore. And maybe yep. that's changed with age, but there was a time when they're like, who are your interview or who, who are you influenced by Richie? And he's like, influenced. I, I'm not influenced by anybody. Like, like what the fuck? He's like, there are certain guitar players I like. <laughs> he was like, well, who are you? Who do you like? And he's like, Cliff Richards. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh, Cliff Richards. Okay. Yeah. It was like, I get my, if I get my guitar or I get my vibrato from Cliff Richards. The people, the, <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, the people in America are like, Cliff who? All right. So for let the most me, part. for the shadows, um, let me, let me, let me slap this one a little bit harder. So we got Yngwie, right? And everybody yeah. talks about how much of a dick he is. Where do you yeah. think he learned it from? Who is yeah. his idol? He acts exactly. just like Richie Blackmore. Yeah. Do you think he's really like this behind the scenes? Probably not at all. No. He's he's probably just a normal dude, but he's like, I got to keep up appearances. It's the same thing. The guy from the darkness said recently um, he was working as an accountant. And um, was that dust? Um, J- Justin uh, Hawkins. Uh, he yeah. was working as an accountant. And this was right before, um, I believe, the thing called love. So like a year or two before. And he's working right. as an accountant and his coworker was like, you mean you play in rock bands? And he's like, well, yeah, he's like, I'm a singer. He's like, I'm a rock and roller. He's like, I'm going to be a rock star. He's like, you, a rock star. And that's when he was like, you know what? Fuck this. So he quit his job. He took up drinking. Uh, He decided he was going to gig every single night. (laughs) And he basically lived being a rock star. I put him into rehab, in fact. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. He basically decided that the only way I was ever going to do it is fake it till I make it. Yeah. And so he's like, I started wearing the outrageous costumes all the time. And like we would go, I mean, when I mean all the time, I mean, like he would wear them to work and stuff. Um, right. And then he would, you know, he'd, he'd gig every night. So it worked out for him. And I think Ingve kind of has some of that similar mentality. I mean, you'd have to be really ballsy to just say, fuck it. I'm getting on a plane and coming to the United States. So there's these similar patterns between these two guys. And it also comes out in their technique. I am itching, and I will report back on this on the show. I am itching to find out whether Richie Blackmore practices downward pick slanting. Because yeah. they don't really sound much alike when they play unless you've heard Ingve do blues. And then you're mm. like, oh, now I get it. Like, he doesn't use the same style of playing, but he's a disciple of it. Um, right. it's, it's a whole thing. He's he's extricated what he needed from that style and assimilated it. Yeah. Um. So, anyway... We're getting uh we're at an hour fifteen. I think it's time yep. to call it Jim. I right. have been David. I have been Jim. And we are those practical, the practical guitars. guitars.